COVID-19 infection numbers are on the rise in San Diego. The frequency of Delta infections has gone from essentially you know, zero two months ago to the majority of the infections now. I'm Christina Kim, in for Jade Hyman with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. California could be the first state to pilot universal basic income, and it's focusing on the most vulnerable. Cities and counties are largely focusing on people who are disproportionately impacted by the pandemic. A look at what's driving the uptick in complicated pregnancies across the county. And we talk with Zelina Gaitan on why she's moving forward with a legal complaint against the San Diego Museum of Art. That's ahead on Midday Edition. I'm Beth Accomando, KPBS arts reporter and host of the Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm also a geeky gourmet who likes to bake food themed to the movies I watch, like chocolate blood to savor with Dracula, or an extra chewy Wookiee cookie to enjoy with Star Wars. I'm geeky about the things I love, and that makes me a public radio geek as well. I love being able to connect with audiences just like you through TV, radio, the web, and podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. So, are you a KPBS geek? If so, then I'm asking you to get in touch with your inner nerd and become a member of KPBS today. Just go to kpbs.org and click the blue Give Now button and make a donation. That's right. Let's geek out together about the things we love. San Diego is seeing a steady increase in COVID-19 infections and hospitalizations. Health officials say it's likely due to the Delta variant, which is now the dominant strain. Joining me to talk about what's happening is Shane Crotty, professor at the Center for Infectious Disease and Vaccine Research at the La Jolla Institute for Immunology. Welcome. Thanks for having me. You say catching the Delta variant is more likely to send you to the hospital than anything else you've caught in your life. What evidence are you seeing that indicates that this variant is more dangerous for people than the initial virus? Ah, that's a good question. It's not clear that it's more dangerous than the initial virus. What's clear is that a lot of people underestimate the severity of coronavirus infections. Um, One of the most common reasons I hear from people for why they're not vaccinated is that since they're under 65, COVID-19 isn't a problem for them. It's just been um, a a lot of misinformation for over a year. And so uh, many of those people find it compelling to hear that, oh, the actual facts are half of hospitalizations in America have come in people under the age of 65, um, and half of those have been in people under the age of 50. And so compared to pretty much anything else that you've uh, experienced in your life, you know, for, for the average American, you, you are at higher risk of ending up in the hospital because of COVID-19. San Diego's current vaccination rate remains at 68.4% of the eligible population. How many people would need to be vaccinated in San Diego County in order to stop the spread of the Delta variant? More. <laughs> um, uh, there's no there's no great way to get, you know, a, a, a precise number uh, on, on the answer. Um, but what we can do is we can 
look at England, uh, the, the UK, and, and predict our, our future, basically. Um, and so they were almost all alpha before the original UK variant, and then Delta showed up, and now it's 99% Delta in, in the UK. And they've ended up having a surge in the UK that's almost as bad as their winter surge, which was a really bad surge. And, and in the US, we... We had a head start because there was a lag there. And so in the U.S., you know, thankfully, gratefully, we, we really managed to get enough people vaccinated to shut down uh, a surge in alpha this, this spring. Right? And so, so vaccination rates, the vaccines work really well, and the vaccination rates were plenty good enough to stop alpha, even though alpha was, was quite infectious. But now looking at the U.K. and looking at Delta cases in the U.S., it, it's clear that the, the vaccination rates we have had aren't aren't high enough to, to start stop Delta, um, which is really related to the fact it's it's a dramatically more infectious virus. So it is simply tougher to stop. And that leads me to my you know, next question, which is how protected are people who have been vaccinated against the Delta variant? Best data come from from England. Um, uh, and it's really, it's in the range of something like 85% uh, protection still from getting symptomatic COVID-19, which is still a great protection level. It's not as good as against alpha or the original coronavirus, which would have been um, in the 95% range. Um, but what's very gratifying to see is that uh, the vaccines are still um, essentially equivalently protective as before against hospitalizations. Um, and so they're highly protective against hospitalizations or death with Delta. And so in the UK, uh, really the biggest problems have been in the unvaccinated population. Here in San Diego, we're seeing a steady increase in infection rates from the end of June to now where we're hovering around 500 new COVID-19 infections a day. What is this telling you? Uh, again, really looking at uh, the numbers from elsewhere in, in America and in the UK, uh, it, it looks like uh, cases will continue to go up because of Delta um, and that there are enough uh, unvaccinated people in the population to really drive those case numbers. Uh, and, and basically that'll be that there'll be enough cases like that, that, that uh, vaccinated people, you know, We'll start having breakthrough infections also. Uh, so uh, depressingly, uh, Delta is definitely a tougher virus to, to stop the spread of. Should vaccinated people still take precautions like masking indoors again, as we've seen mandated in L.A. County? From a vaccine perspective, the answer is you know, that uh, fully vaccinated people will be protected from serious disease with, with Delta. Uh, there will certainly be uh, some breakthrough infections. And so it is, as, as case numbers rise, it's, it's worthwhile for people to pay attention, right? If, you, if you've got a sniffle um, and you're vaccinated, you know, it is worth getting tested um, because the difference is if you caught a sniffle and then you test for COVID-19 and you're negative, um, well, treat it how you would uh, a regular cold, right? Whatever your normal behavior under those circumstances would be. Uh, but if it's COVID-19, right, you should probably pay more careful attention to yourself and, and how you're taking care of yourself. And, of course, how you are around uh, other people, certainly self-isolate from, from high-risk individuals. 
So you, you know, you said this today and, you know, other health officials are also assuming that the Delta variant is really responsible for the majority of the new cases that we're seeing. But we don't know for certain because so few of the infections are sequenced. How important is it to know what strain we're seeing? It matters a lot. It doesn't matter for every individual uh, infection, but um, yeah, it's been clear for a year that we're, we're lacking public health infrastructure in the U.S. for uh, f- for tracking viruses and sequencing at, at the level we desire. Um, the, the systems they have in place uh, in places like England or even in South Africa, um, they get enough sequencing data and they get it organized well enough that they can tell um, uh, quickly how fast outbreaks are happening, you know, and how to change uh, positions on things. And, and we are still lacking that in the U.S. However, we can certainly get enough data overall for people to be able to see that, that the, the frequency of Delta infections has gone from essentially you know, zero two months ago to the majority of infections now. And in other countries where that's been happening, uh, Delta has become 90 or 99% of the infections very quickly. And so certainly the expectation is Delta is the virus of the present and the future uh, and that it's, it's going to represent almost all infections in, in San Diego if it, if it doesn't already. I've been speaking with Shane Crotty, professor in the Center for Infectious Disease and Vaccine Research at the La Jolla Institute for Immunology. Thank you for speaking with me. Thanks for having me. California is about to become the first state in the nation to experiment with providing residents a guaranteed basic income. When signed by the governor, the legislation will open up a pool of $35 million for basic income pilot programs across the state. Foster youth who have aged out of the system and pregnant women will be the first in line for programs offering monthly cash payments of $500 to $1,000. The state's universal basic income experiment is based on similar successful programs in the Bay Area and Stockton, California. Joining me is Jesse Bedane, who reported on universal basic income for Cal Matters. And Jesse, welcome. Thank you for having me. Now, how is this money going to be distributed? Will people actually be able to apply for this income? They haven't worked out the regulations that will uh, basically determine how people will receive funds. But what we know now is that Cities and counties will be able to apply to the $35 million to receive some amount of that money to fund their own program. So individuals themselves won't be applying to it, but cities will be able to apply, receive that money, um, and then distribute it in their own programs that already exist or ones that they are creating. And when they create these programs, which groups of people are more likely to be selected to receive payments? What we're seeing is that cities and counties are largely focusing on people who were disproportionately impacted by the pandemic, which is low-income families, largely minorities. For example, in the Bay Area, Oakland is focusing on low-income families. Marin County is focusing on pregnant Black women who have had historically high rates of premature infant death relative to white families and white women. And so what you're seeing, especially in language uh, of new programs in San Diego and Los Angeles, is that they're specifically targeting low-income families disproportionately hit by COVID-19 and the ensuing economic downfall. And how are these basic income payments different from welfare payments? Historically, 
payments have arrived to recipients with caveats. So with food stamps, somebody gets their food stamps and they can only spend that on food. With rental insurance, they can only spend it on rent. Um, And these programs historically have determined what was best for the individual without allowing them to determine what was best for themselves. So the different mindset of guaranteed income programs is to give people money, trusting them to determine what is best for themselves. If they need to buy food, they can buy food with it. If they need to pay their rent, they can pay their rent. If it needs to go to a a car bill, it can go to a car bill. Uh, And the government is not having a say in in how that money is spent. You know, it seems just yesterday, the government wanted to make it harder for people to seek assistance. So this universal basic income concept kind of seems very new, but how long actually has the idea been around? Been around for actually a, a couple hundred years, but it gained greater traction with Martin Luther King Jr., who um, proposed it to abolish poverty. And then since then, it's popped up uh, in Silicon Valley. A lot of uh, Silicon Valley moguls have supported the idea. And then in 2016, Andrew Yang's presidential campaign really promoted UBI across the country, which made it a household name. But talking to the people who are behind a lot of these pilot programs, Andrew Yang's campaign helped to spread the word. Um, But it was a big leap from very few programs that existed and pilot programs that existed to a nationwide program. And what Mayors for Guaranteed Income, which is behind a lot of these pilots, is hoping is that we'll have a slower start with all of these pilot programs popping up right now. And they believe that the reason it's gained so much traction the last year is that the pandemic and the economic fallout from the pandemic really showed the tediousness of a lot of people who are living on the financial edge. It impacted millions of people and disproportionately low-income families and people of color. So what we're seeing is uh, states and cities um, focusing on those families to provide these benefits and a, a much greater support for programs like this after people saw the disparities that were revealed by COVID-19. Now, you you know, one criticism of the basic income concept is that if you give people money, they won't want to work. And people could point to the expanded unemployment benefits and the service industry labor shortage that we're experiencing now, for an example. Here's Matt Slowinski. He's director of the Center for Ethics, Economics, and Public Policy at USD. The more generous you make unemployment benefits at the margin, uh, the less likely people are going to be willing to go back to work. Similarly, the more generous you make an unconditional basic income, the more people you are going to have who decide that they want to take more time off between jobs, they want to stay home and work with their kids, they want to invest in a couple of years of extra schooling, none of which are necessarily bad things. Uh, So the empirical question of whether a basic income or unemployment insurance will cause a decrease in labor market participation is different from the moral or ethical question of whether it's a good thing for society to have fewer people involved in the labor market for various reasons. Now, how has that concept played out in the basic income experiments that have already been conducted in California? What we're seeing is that the first basic income pilot, which was in Stockton, found that over the first year, folks who were receiving the payments compared to the control group, their employment actually went up by about 12%. So what supporters point to is that program. 
which is the first to have pretty solid results out that shows that employment rose while uh, the participants receiving were receiving the payments. The concern with a lot of these pilots is that the limited time frame doesn't allow for accurate data. Uh, as Matt pointed out, if a recipient knows that they will not be receiving these payments in two years or one year, then they're probably more likely to be searching for a job. What Mayors for Guaranteed Income is hoping to pull from all of these pilots is to figure out kind of what worked and what didn't. Each pilot is incredibly different, and they all focus on different groups, provide a different amount of money, and will offer different evidence that mayors for guaranteed income can eventually use to determine the best guaranteed income policy. And a big debate that uh, Matt brought up within this is, is the income enough to survive on where the recipient wouldn't have to work at the same time? And some of these payments, say $500 a month, is not enough to survive on to pay rent and uh, utilities and all the other necessities of life. Someone who is receiving $500 a month would also have to get a job. If that payment was $2,000 a month, you might have a different, different story and people might be more incentivized to not return to work. But that is what's being tested now by these pilots. Now, this bill was sent to the governor on Thursday. Is he expected to sign it? People do expect him to sign the bill and move forward with the $35 million for California pilots. Okay, I've been speaking with Jesse Bedane, who reported on universal basic income for Cal Matters. Jesse, thank you so much. Thank you. Long ago, when the public square was the only place to share news, events, and happenings, people were drawn to it. Living in community with others was the route to understanding each other and the world around us. The public square has changed dramatically, but our need to learn and understand one another has it. This is Port of Entry, the Parker Edison Project. Listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie. Thank you for listening to KPBS Podcasts and for being part of our region's virtual public square, where you learn not only about the headlines of the day, but about culture, music, and the issues that are important to all of us. Help keep the virtual square alive and well. Support podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. Just go to kpbs.org, click the blue Give Now button, and make a donation. And thanks again. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Christina Kim in for Jade Heineman. High-risk pregnancies are on the rise. KPBS health reporter Matt Hoffman has an inside look at how one San Diego hospital system is expanding operations to deal with growing numbers. Within the first week of us dating, we definitely had the kid conversation and we both really wanted kids. Megan and Ricky Miller from San Marcos had been married for two years when they decided it was time to try for a baby. And then within a month, we, um, we got pregnant. So it was pretty quick. Everything was going great, but at around 19 weeks when they went in to see the baby's gender, something was wrong. Her head was on, on track, but her limbs were a little bit smaller than they should be. So that kind of got the concern going of like, maybe it 
that's more in line with a genetic disorder. Definitely was scary because yeah. it, it was the same day we found out her gender. So it was, you know, we didn't know, we didn't know. It was a huge happy day. We were stoked. We zoomed and our family. We, we, so we zoomed. We did the whole like gender reveal via Zoom yeah. uh, with both of our families, and then like literally half an hour later. Mm -hmm. They called and said something's off. Having a genetic disorder is not the worst thing, but there's a lot of complications that can happen in pregnancy, like stillbirth and things like that. So that was really more my fear was if the baby was going to make it or not. Complications during pregnancy are scary. And while 80% of women have healthy pregnancies, a Blue Cross Blue Shield study from last year found rates of complications are rising, due in part to more mothers with pre-existing conditions. One of the ways to tackle our increasing number of premature births Right? Well, it's, it's been steady, but we haven't been able to really put a dent in it for years and years. It's to make sure, again, mom is taken care of. Dr. Sean Donishman is the medical director for Scripps Health's perneatology program, which was started in 2018 and has been expanding. Complications are on the rise. We've got more women who are you know, uh, gaining more weight pre-pregnancy. Diabetes is on the rise. Hypertension is on the rise. Something we forget, depression, anxiety is on the rise. And so therefore, in order to address all these issues, you know, Scripps uh, decided to bring on a team. Donishman says the best way to address underlying conditions is to talk to a specialist before getting pregnant because it could save the mother or the baby's life. We talk to the patient, we educate them, we refer them to our Scripps Weedier colleagues for our diabetes and pregnancy program to undergo nutritional counseling, dietary counseling, you know, learn if they need to be on medication, how to uh, take the medication. He says one of the hardest conversations is telling a mother with pre-existing conditions that she maybe should not try to get pregnant right away. If a woman wants a child, it's very difficult. Let's say she has had a recent stroke, for example. A year later, she wants to have a child or she's had a recent heart attack, or she has cancer, and, uh, or again, some comorbidities that just are not conducive to a healthy pregnancy. And it's very difficult for women to hear that they shouldn't have children. For Megan and Ricky Miller, news that their baby might have a genetic disorder and had a large hole in the heart cut them off guard, especially because Megan had no known pre-existing conditions. We just decided early on that we're not gonna let this steal our joy, because you can just have fear and be worried the entire time or you can say, no, I'm not gonna have fear. I'm gonna be joyful and believe that this is gonna turn out well. The couple were told they might have to have their baby delivered at 25 weeks old, which would have required months of intensive care. But even after a small scare, where Megan had to spend nearly a week in the hospital, Galilee Ryan was delivered at 36 weeks old, weighing in at just three pounds, two ounces, and the large hole in her heart went away. And they saw some um, narrowing of the aortic arch. That's not there. Um, so yeah, it's just really, a miracle, baby. The Millers now spend most of their time at Scripps La Jolla's neonatal intensive care unit, where Galilee is expected to be for at least a couple more weeks. So she's eating about 50% by bottle right now, uh, and then the rest they're putting through an NG tube. So that's increasing every day. She's eating more and more and having more strength every day. She's starting to cry and fuss. Megan says overall, while stressful, she's grateful for the care of the specialists who help her deliver her baby. Results from testing just found Galilee has no genetic disorder, and there are plans for more kids soon. But yeah, we want lots. <laughs> what do you say lots? What's like? I don't know. <laughs> well, she like the day after she was born, Megan goes, let's do another one. Let's do it. I want to be, I want to be pregnant again. <laughs> she needs a sister or brother. I don't know, five, seven, we'll see. Matt Hoffman, KPBS News. Joining me is Dr. Sean Donishman, Medical Director for Scripps Health's Perinatology Program. Dr. Donishman, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Maureen. 
Now, we just heard this couple whose baby survived a high-risk pregnancy say they want many more children. Do you see that happening often? Absolutely. Absolutely. We see that uh, quite frequently. And uh, as we mentioned uh, previously, you know, uh, patients and women um, will do anything uh, for their children. And uh, it's, a, it's a very good time for patients uh, to see their obstetrician, gynecologist, to talk about, again, pre-pregnancy planning. This is a very important time where we can actually reduce some of the comorbidities we see in pregnancies and some of the, some of the complications we encounter in pregnancy. Does having one high-risk pregnancy increase the chances that another will be high-risk? It depends. It depends. There are certain things that are really out of the patient's control. For example, if a patient has a baby with a chromosome abnormality or a congenital abnormality, a lot of times those are out of the patient's hands. I mean, we always really, again, talk about uh, genetic and environmental uh, risk factors. And um, the combination of those obviously can lead to uh, pregnancy complications. But, you know, there are comorbidities prior to pregnancy, such as obesity, such as chronic hypertension or elevated blood pressures uh, or diabetes. These are things that we can work on. If there are patients uh, who are taking medications that may not be necessarily safe uh, during pregnancy, if they're smoking, if they are using illicit substances, you know, if they're drinking alcohol. I mean, there are things that we can do to reduce the number of complications that we see in pregnancies, but um, some of them may not necessarily recur. Because again, again, it's not something that uh, wasn't in, in the patient's control. Many women are having children at an older age, and I'm wondering how has that contributed to the rise in high-risk pregnancies? So uh, women who are older have an increased associated risk for uh, having preeclampsia, which is a condition in pregnancy where blood pressures uh, rise. They also have an increased risk for developing gestational diabetes mellitus, uh, preterm labor, uh, growth restriction with the baby. So, you know, uh, women that are older also have an increased associated risk with chromosome abnormalities. So these are some of the things we see and we counsel patients for. It must be so difficult, doctor, to advise a woman who wants a child that she should not become pregnant. I'm wondering how and when does your team of medical experts, how do they come to that conclusion? It's a team effort, Maureen. We uh, encourage, again, patients to be uh, seeking uh, preconception counseling, to talk to their providers about uh, their medical history, their family history, their prior pregnancy history. Uh, and it is difficult. Again, there are some patients who are not good candidates to be pregnant. So we, uh, we offer them, you know, the option of adoption, obviously surrogacy. But um, again, there are, it, it's, it, there are opportunities, right? So it opens up the door for if someone is, for example, uh, obese or someone has hypertension or diabetes. Again, these are, um, if a woman wants to be pregnant, then this is a good time for them to be able to uh, really address their health, their lifestyle, and uh, uh, make sure they reduce their weight, you know, reduce their uh, need for blood pressure medication or diabetes, and uh, be more suitable to uh, progress with pregnancy. Now, it's ultimately the potential parent's decision about whether to have a baby. So how do you see your role as providing a warning or being an educator? Well, we see it as both. We see that we are um, educators. We're also educated by our patients, to be honest with you. So I think that uh, we, uh, as high-risk obstetricians, I'm excited to come to work because I work with mothers and families that are 
interested in their pregnancies. They want the best outcome for their child. It makes it a wonderful time and worthwhile time for us to spend talking about pregnancy. What are the things that we need to do to ensure a healthy pregnancy for both mom and the baby? Uh, and it also uh, can serve, like you said, as a warning sign for, for patients for things to look out for. In pregnancy, unfortunately, we're not as advanced yet as far as prevention is concerned. We are very reactive, to be honest with you, Maureen, in pregnancy. So we're very good at making diagnoses and preeclampsia and, you know, someone who's got diabetes, obviously, someone who's got congenital abnormalities. You know, we're very good at picking these up, but and making the diagnosis. We're just not very good at prevention. So we have, we're working on, um, on ways to make sure that patients are educated about the symptoms, for example, of high blood pressure in pregnancy, uh, making sure we can diagnose patients with earlier screening for diabetes. Uh, we can, again, warn patients of the uh, signs and symptoms in regards to premature labor. And so we all continue to learn from each other as obstetricians and, uh, and as patients. I've been speaking with Dr. Sean Donishman, Medical Director for Scripps Health's Perinatology Program. And doctor, thank you so much for speaking with us. Maureen, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you. Selena Gaitan, the former museum attendant at the San Diego Museum of Art, who publicly quit earlier this year, has filed a sexual harassment complaint against the museum. She alleges that museum management fostered a culture that allowed sexual harassment to occur and is discriminatory against women of color employees. She joins me now to share why she's moving forward with this complaint. Hello, Zelina. Welcome to Midday Edition. Hello, Miss Kim. Thank you for having me. And before we begin, I want to warn listeners that we will be discussing issues of sexual harassment that can be triggering and may not be appropriate for all audiences. Zelina, you allege that during your nearly five years of working at the San Diego Museum of Art, you and others were put in situations that made you feel unsafe because inebriated museum guests would try to kiss and grope staff. What exactly happened at these events? Well, um, these events, um, by the names of Culture and Cocktails, Bloom Bash, um, what they are, are there are parties hosted by the museum. Um, and all, all of them are also fundraisers. So this is one way that the museum gains money to run their establishment, you know. And so as museum attendants, my job was to protect the art and make sure that the art was not touched and um, also just general customer service. Uh, these events would also be mandatory shifts for museum attendants. So there was no really way to get out of these, even though quickly after beginning working at the museum, I, I came to realize, oh, these are actually um, very um, compromising shifts, you know. And what would happen was as museum attendants, we, we would be prone to either um, physical harassment, uh, aggressiveness or sexual harassment many times by guests who would get so inebriated. And, and it was very detrimental. Now, the museum provides these drinks. So therefore, it's the museum's responsibility. Not to mention that I, this was my job. This is my workplace. And these parties, even though they, they fund the art, it, it, it's done in such an unethical way because it compromises the safety and well-being of its workers. You say that you talked to museum management about this. What did they say and what actions did they take? Well, um, what happened was I got sexual assault training and 
as I started to see this, the video, I realized, oh, all of the video was describing according to the California law. All of these experiences are mine. And or I've heard of other um, museum attendants have, who have had these experiences. And so I, I, I remember I, I told Miss um, Claire, our, our HR, you know, I, the way that museum attendants experience sexual harassment is actually at these events. And it has a lot to do with the amount of alcohol that is served because there's no portion control. There's no volume control. And um, as I started to detail my own experience with being um, inappropriately touched and harassed at the museum and also seeing guests um, inappropriately um, touch the, the private parts of nude statues, all of that, according to California law, according to this video training, all of that was sexual harassment. And so as I, as I told my story, their response was, what well, did you tell your lead? And the truth was, and the truth this still is, that there was no way because I was positioned in the middle of a dance floor trying to protect this, this sculpture by Mexican artist Javier Marin. And that was my job, right? To protect the sculpture. But there was no one to protect me. And I, um, I'm sorry. I, um, I froze because I just wasn't, you know, I, you don't expect to be inappropriately touched at your job. And, and, and I couldn't see their face. And it was very dark because again, this was a dance floor. And, um, there's no way I could report that. There's no way I could say this person did that to me. So when I had that meeting with HR, they they just they didn't listen. They dismissed me and they kept on putting it on me. And I finally told them, look, we're not a nightclub. This is a museum and we're museum attendants. There's no reason why we should come to work feeling afraid. And there's no reason why we should come to work with the possibilities of being groped. Zelina, I can hear in your voice, I mean, just recounting it, uh, what it's doing to you. How has this all impacted you and what made you decide to go public with this? Yes, um, I loved my job <laughs> as a museum attendant. Actually, what I was known for was talking to the children about the art. <laughs> and I, I really wanted to continue with my job. I was one of their best workers, not to mention that the museum, they pride themselves in their um, Baroque um, Spanish art. And that's what I studied. That's my undergrad thesis, you know, and I'm also trilingual. So I could talk to half of the, <laughs> this a touristy place. So I really could, I really delivered when it came to customer service and, and I just really loved my job. And for when I started to speak up in defense of my, our, uh, my life and our museum attendance lives and why it's not okay that they're not taking responsibility for how much alcohol is being provided and then add a sexual assault training. Um, and then again, when I, I spoke up in defense of Asian lives, um, Asian American lives, when I realized that one of their upcoming exhibitions would not be appropriate given the the harassment and the dangers that Asian American people have been facing with, with that type of racism that has come because of the pandemic. I was just degraded and degraded and, and I wasn't listened to. And 
it got to a point where you know it felt like I was in an abusive relationship you know where I realized it doesn't matter how skilled I am it doesn't like all of the good things that I bring to this place is not valued my life is not valued there is no policy change I I brought up the sexual harassment stuff six months at least six months prior and nothing was changed no investigation happened no policy changes I I had suggested and I realized I can't continue. I actually have to go. But when I decided to do that, I was like, I don't want this to happen to any other coworker, um, particularly because I know that many of my coworkers are college age students. And I just like, I don't want this to keep on going on. And so I, when the moment that I, I, I quit, I said, I want to keep this institution accountable. I could not do that through the medium, like HR would not listen to me. The director would not listen to me. The, my own supervisors would not listen to me. And so that's when I decided to go public. And it started with the change.org petition for workers' rights. And actually, you know, the reception of that was phenomenal. It turns out that I wasn't the only one. And more stories to, started in the comments. You can see other previous employers who say, I, I, I've been there. KPBS did reach out to the San Diego Museum of Art. A spokesperson says the museum does not comment on pending litigation, but they have hired a third-party investigator to look into the allegations, and they're conducting diversity, equity, and inclusion trainings for all staff. Do you think this is a step in the right direction? I would hope so, but honestly, I have my doubts only because that investigation did not start. Um, that it should have been a so sexual assault should have been investigated right away when I reported it in, in August of last year. They only started it when I became when I came public um, with the petition. To be honest, I, I hold hesitancy. Um, and I but I don't I still think that change should come to the museum, but it has to be real change. It has to be genuine change. And it starts with accountability. I've been speaking with Zelina Gaitan, a former San Diego Art Museum employee who has filed a sexual harassment complaint against the museum. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Ms. Kim. Public radio programs attract educated consumers and business decision makers. You can reach this highly desirable audience with your company's marketing message on KPBS. Isn't it time to make our listeners your customers? Find out how by calling 619-594-5715 today. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Christina Kim in for Jade Hindman. The San Diego Union-Tribune is introducing a new voice in its coverage of Southern California, a video news magazine called Nuestra Voz Today. It's a collaboration between the UT and the LA Times to increase coverage and outreach to the region's Latino community. The creators of Nuestra Voz say the bilingual program will cover news, entertainment, and sports through video features and interviews, and it will be available on a variety of platforms from local television channels to the internet. Joining me now is one of the hosts of Nuestra Voz today, Luis Cruz. And Luis, welcome. Thank you very much, Maureen. There are already Spanish language television news programs in Southern California. What do you think is missing that this program wants to provide? I think what will make this show unique is that it'll bring stories not only in English, but also in Spanish, 
and a little bit of Spanglish, which is the way a lot of us communicate at home or with our friends. Uh, and also the fact that we are using the resources of the Los Angeles Times and the Union Tribune. So we're, we're happy to have uh, all of those resources and all of those great reporters and journalists. Uh, we'll also be interviewing uh, LA Times and Union Tribune journalists and staff photographers so that readers and viewers can get to know who is writing or documenting these stories about the Latino community in Southern California and the border region. Now, how is the bilingual broadcast actually going to work? Will there be subtitles? So right now, we do have subtitles in a lot of our pre-produced uh, packages. However, our reporters obviously interview a lot of people in both languages. Um, and we are planning to just air the language, uh, the Spanish language portions as is, if we don't have time to add subtitles to them. We're assuming that uh, most of our viewers uh, that are interested in this content can understand English, Spanish, and uh, and then, as I mentioned, uh, we'll even throw in a little bit of Spanglish in there because we tend to go back and forth. Now, you're calling Nuestra Voz a weekly news magazine. So how would you describe it? Is it like 60 Minutes? You know, I like to think of it as a local 60 minutes uh, type of uh, news magazine. Uh, right now, we are starting off once a month. Uh, we premiered uh, this past Sunday on July 18th, but it'll start airing on the first Sunday of the month throughout the rest of the year. And then after that, we'll reevaluate the situation and see if we can add to the frequency. But yes, I would love to eventually see it as a, a weekly half hour news program. So the first episode is already aired. Can you give us some of the highlights of the first Nuestra Voz? Kate Morrissey, the Union Tribune's immigration reporter, did a long series on the U.S. asylum system uh, where she traveled to uh, Central America and uh, documented some stories, people that uh, were returned back to Central America. And so she led off our, our first segment. We also had Gustavo Arellano, who did a whole series on Fernando Valenzuela's incredible rise 40 years ago in Major League Baseball. The series is called Fernando Mania at 40. Our lead photojournalist, Alejandro Tamayo, who is really leading the charge in terms of uh, a lot of the shooting of the show, but also editing the show, profiled a muralist uh, in Barrio Logan, and Andrea Lopez Villafaña, who uh, covers communities for the Union Tribune, looked back at Selena. It would have been her 50th uh, birthday this year had she still been alive. And then we also uh, encourage people to sign up for our Latinx uh, Files newsletter, which is written by Fidel Martinez out of the Los Angeles Times. And of course, videos from uh, the LA Times and Union Tribune food sections. Uh, food is a big part of our culture. So that will definitely uh, be in the show. And then, of course, the L.A. Times in Espanol, as well as the L.A. Times and Union Tribune and Union Tribune in Espanol. We cover a lot of entertainment. So uh, we hope to add a lot of uh, entertainment uh, stories as well. You know, Luis, you must have done a lot of research into the kinds of news available and geared to the Latino population in Southern California. So what grade would you give San Diego news coverage in general in serving the region's Latino population? Oh, that's a very good question, because that also requires uh, looking at what we've done. <laughs> we uh, have actually at the Union Tribune have 
an internal committee that meets weekly, a Latino uh, coverage committee, where we talk about some of the stories that are related to the Latino audience. And again, the reporters uh, and the photographers and, and the people working on these stories don't necessarily need to be uh, Latinos. These are just uh, stories that may be of interest to Latinos. But we're seeing more and more, at least within our organization, more of a focus on on definitely and 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 being intentional about uh, tackling uh, stories that are important to the Latino community. So you are the co-host of this program. You have a, another host that is going to be presenting Nuestra Voz. What are you hoping to bring to these broadcasts? So I created the show uh, Nuestra Voz today. Uh, it was actually an idea I had uh, about two years ago when I worked for the the LA Times and was uh, up in LA helping to launch LA Times today. And when I came back to the Union Tribune uh, about two years ago, um, talked about it with our editor and publisher, Jeff Light, and he just thought it was a great idea and said, let's do it. And then, of course, COVID hit. So that stalled uh, our plans a little bit. But now that uh, we're coming out of the pandemic, here we are. Uh, it's been launched and, uh, and we're hoping to, uh, again, highlight uh, the coverage and uh, the initiatives of the San Diego Union Tribune and the Los Angeles Times and, of course, um, introduce our audience to the reporters and staff photographers uh, who are writing and documenting these stories about the Latino community in Southern California and uh, the border region. Fortunately for me, I'm also co-hosting the show with Paola Hernandez Jao, who I had the pleasure of working with at Channel 10 uh, here in San Diego at 10 News and um, where she had a similar role uh, as a community relations um, manager. Uh, she's our current community relations manager. And uh, so we're working together on uh, former forming partnerships with, with the community, but also again, um, bringing attention and highlighting and showcasing uh, the work that our colleagues do day in and day out in the newsroom. And where can people see Nuestra Voz? People can watch Nuestra Voz today on Cox Cable. Uh, it's available in San Diego. It's also up north in Santa Barbara, Orange County, Palos Verdes, Palm Springs, and east uh, over to Yuma, Arizona. So we're excited about uh, being able to touch on a lot of the areas that, that we cover. Uh, people can also watch it on our website, sandiegouniontribune.com slash nuestra hyphen voz hyphen today, or you can just Google Nuestra Voz Today, San Diego Union Tribune, and the page will come up. It's also on our YouTube channel, and we'll also uh, put segments up on our social media pages as well. We also have sections on our websites of both the Union Tribune and the LA Times called Latino Life, and so you'll also find links there as well. Well, congratulations. I've been speaking with Luis Cruz. He's co-host of the new program, Nuestra Voz Today. And thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Maureen. I appreciate it.